civilized to death. The price of progress. Christopher Ryan. To Frank and Julie, and to those who have been, are being, and will be civilized to death. The friendly and flowing savage, who is he? Is he waiting for civilization or past it and mastering it? Walt Whitman. Introduction. Know thy species. Call me ungrateful. I've got silver fillings in my teeth, artisanal beer in my fridge, and a world of music in my pocket. I drive a Japanese car with cruise control, power steering, and airbags poised to cushion me in an explosive embrace should I drift off. I wear German glasses that darken in California sunlight, and I'm writing these words on a computer that's thinner and lighter than the book they've eventually be printed in. They'll eventually be printed in. I enjoyed the company of friends I'd have lost if they hadn't been saved by emergency surgery. And for the last 17 years of his life, my father's blood was filtered through the liver of a man named Chuck Zawerner, who died in 2002. I have every reason to appreciate the many wonders of civilization. And yet, when the English author G.K. Chesterton first visited America in 1921, his hosts took him to see Times Square at night. Chesterton stood staring in silence for several increasingly awkward moments. When someone finally asked him for his thoughts, Chesterton replied, I was thinking how beautiful this would be if I couldn't read. Like Chesterton, we can read the signs and they're not good. The insistent flashing ads are steadily losing their power to distract us from what many know and most suspect we are approaching the end of the road. Belief in progress, the promise and premise of civilization, is melting away like a glacier. But what about antibiotics and airplanes, women's rights, gay marriage? True enough, but upon closer inspection, many of the supposed gifts of civilization turn out to be a little more than partial compensation for what we've already paid, or they cause as much trouble as they claim to solve. Most of the infectious diseases vaccines protect us from. We, for example, were never a problem until humans began living with domesticated animals, from which pathogens jumped over to our species. Influenza, chickenpox, tuberculosis, cholera, heart disease, depression, malaria, tooth decay, most types of cancer, and just about every other major ailment responsible for causing massive suffering to our species derive their lethality from some aspect of civilization. Domesticated animals, densely populated towns and cities, open sewers, food contaminated with pesticides, disruptions to our microbiome, and so on. Within just a few years of unlocking the miracle of flight, 
pilots were flying from one hand while tossing bombs on civilians with the other. And only in the most progressive modern societies are LGBTQ people and women regaining the acceptance and respect they typically received in most foraging societies. Reports of progress have a tendency to be wildly overstated and uncritically accepted, while anyone who questions the benefits of civilization is liable to be dismissed as cynical, utopian, or some hybrid of both. Quote, an era can be considered over, unquote, said Arthur Miller, when its basic illusions have been exhausted, unquote. Progress, surely, the basic illusion of our era, is spent. Dystopian scenarios loom ever larger as fisheries collapse, CO2 levels rise, and clouds of radioactive steam billow from fail-safe nuclear plants. Oil gushes into oceans, mutating pathogens overwhelm the last effective antibiotics and the living dead stumble through our collective unconscious. Each successive year is the hottest on record and the next undeclared war ignites from the embers of the previous while political parties nominate charlatans who can't agree on what's happening much less what to do about it. Despite the marvels of our age, or maybe partly because of them, these are deeply troubled times. It's common to wonder what sage advice an emissary from the future might bring back to help us choose the best path forward. But consider the opposite scenario. How would a time traveler from the prehistoric past assess the state and trajectory of the modern world? She would no doubt be impressed by much of what she encountered here, but once her amazement at mobile phones, air travel, and self-driving cars subsided, what would she make of the substance and meaning of our lives? Would she be more awed by our doodads or dismayed by what we've left behind in our rush toward an increasingly precarious future? This question isn't as hypothetical as it seems. In letter to a friend, this question isn't as hypothetical as it seems. Missionaries, explorers, adventurers, and anthropologists have been consistently confused and disappointed by indigenous people's rejection of the comforts and constraints of civilization. Quote, why should I learn to farm, asked Kung San Man, when there are so many Mongogo nuts in the world? Unquote. In a letter to a friend, Benjamin Franklin noted how little interest Indians had in joining civilization. Quote, they have never shown any inclination to change their manner of life for ours. When an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language and habitated to our customs. Yet if he goes to see his relations and make one Indian ramble with them, 
there is no persuading him ever want to ever to return. And when white children got a taste of Indian life generally due to having been kidnapped, they also preferred it, according to Franklin. After their rescue, quote, in a short time, they become disgusted with our manner of life and the care and pains that are necessary to support it and take the first good opportunity. Charles Darwin saw firsthand how difficult it was to sell native people on civilization. Passing through Tierra del Fuego on the Beagle, he was amazed by what seemed to him to be the squalor and degradation of the people living at the cold and stormy southernmost tip of the Americas. In a letter to a friend, Darwin's wrote, quote, I have seen nothing which more completely astonished me than the first night at the first sight of a savage. It was a naked Fugian, his long hair billowing out. his long hair blowing out, his face besmeared with paint, unquote. In his journal, Darwin wrote, I believe if the world was searched, no, law, no lower grade of man could be found, unquote. On an earlier trip, the Beagle's captain, Robert Fitzroy, had abducted three Fugians, two children whom the British called Fugia Basket and Jemmy Button, and a young man they called York Minister. The kidnapping was justified. Young man they called the minister. The kidnapping was justified, Fitzroy felt, because because the ultimate benefits arising from their acquaintance with our habits and language would make up for the temporary separation from their own country. Fitzroy had had taken them back to England where they began. But when the Beagle returned to Woolia Cove, near what is now called Mount Darwin, just a year after dropping them off, Jemmy, York, and Foygia were nowhere to be found. The huts and gardens the British sailors had built for the three Fuegians were deserted and overgrown. Eventually, Jemmy was located and joined Darwin and Fitzroy for dinner on the ship, where he confirmed that the Fuegians had abandoned their civilized ways. Overcome with sadness, Darwin wrote what he'd never seen so complete and grievous a change, and that, quote, it was painful to behold him, unquote. Darwin noted that Jemmy hadn't forgotten how to use a knife and fork properly. When Captain Fitzroy offered transport back to England, Jeremy 
to return to England. Not at least. As he was happy and contented with plenty fruits, plenty fish, and plenty birdies. <laughs>